We have the joy once again to be able to open up the infallible record of the Word of God. And this morning we find ourselves continuing through the Gospel of Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 23, a rather large passage of Scripture. But there's some repetition here, and I think we will be able to cover it adequately. So follow along as I read this text as the Lord speaks to us through his word regarding the parable of the sower and the seed. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him. So that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole multitude was standing on the beach and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted for whoever has to him shall more be given and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return. And I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road and the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man Who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. 
And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Here, dear friends, we have a marvelous passage describing four conditions of men's heart with respect to receiving the gospel of Christ. And it provides for us great insight into the issues of evangelism and the nature of true saving faith. What we have in this text is the Lord, in typical rabbinic fashion, sitting, this time in a boat. And the beach becomes an amphitheater as the, the, uh, the ground moves up off of the water's edge and the people stand and sit around to hear the Lord speak to them. And he here now describes the types of people that he faces when he presents the gospel. The same type of people that we're all going to face when we present the gospel. And again, he's speaking to the multitudes in parables, a common method that he had used. You look at verse three and you see that he did this quite often where he would communicate a spiritual truth by comparing it with a common and easily understood physical parallel or some example that would illustrate the meaning. Now, in the past, and it's important for you to understand this, Jesus would explain the spiritual meaning to his hearers after he had given the parable. But no more. No more is he going to do this. Here, in the parable of the sower and the seed, he gives it with no explanation to the multitudes, only to the disciples. And this is frustrating to the disciples. They don't understand it. So they say in verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? And he gives a very lengthy answer in verses 11 through 17 that we've discussed at length before. But let me remind you again briefly why he would do this. First of all, in deliberately obscuring or not explaining the truth, we see here an act of divine judgment where he is judicially sealing people in their deliberate and their calloused unbelief. They had heard the truth many times before. They had seen his miracles. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so now he cuts them away from any future spiritual enlightenment. Israel deliberately and consistently ignored the Lord's teachings. And now they stand here before their Messiah. They continue to reject them, reject him. And he knows that. And so he condemns them because of their unbelief. And the consequence of unbelief is always divine judgment. And a sample of that judgment is what we have here with parables being presented and the truth obscured by lack of translation. So, first of all, it was a, it was a, an act of divine judgment. But secondly, it was an act of mercy because you must understand by judicially blinding them to even more truth, he is protecting them from greater condemnation because the more light a person has and rejects, the greater will be their eternal suffering. As we learned when we studied Matthew 11 and Jesus condemnation of Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin. So. From here on out, Jesus' ministry will include parables, but he will explain them only to the disciples, only to those who have ears to hear, only whose hearts are repentant and humble and receptive. In verse 16, he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And he goes on and tells them how fortunate they were. To be living in that time, to be in the very presence of their Messiah, the long-awaited king, 
According to verse 11, he says, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You see, you must understand that now he's saying by sovereign appointment, by direct revelation and, and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, you are able to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Mysteries referring to those spiritual truths that were revealed but not understood in the Old Testament. Truths that were shrouded in symbols and types and rituals and prophetic language. And now they're able to understand them. Now it all becomes clear. So Jesus is saying, this is great news for you because now you can understand these mysteries. And by the way, the same is true even more so, shall we say, for us, because we can look back over redemptive history and we can understand even more of what the Lord was telling us in the Old Testament and even in the New so in verse 17, he says, for truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But now, beginning in verse 18, he explains to his true disciples his methods of evangelism and what goes on in the hearts of men. And he explains the dis the parable of the sower and the seed. And this is the very heart of the text that we want to look at this morning, where he describes four kinds of hearts, if you will, that he has encountered and he does encounter in evangelism and likewise all of us who follow. And I've labeled them for you so that you can grasp their meaning. Those four hearts would be as follows. Number one, we will look at the impervious heart. Secondly, the impressionable heart. Thirdly, the indifferent heart. And fourthly, the impoverished heart. The impervious heart, impressionable heart, indifferent heart, and impoverished heart. Now, before we examine these, let's understand the context and the analogies that are being used. He's speaking about a sower. And perhaps you've sown seed yourself. I have before. I've had the type where, especially when I was a little boy, we would take the seed, throw it out in the grass or in a field and throw it out of a bag and we get a little more technical these days and we've got this at least I've got one of these little things you pour the seed in you turn the crank and it scatters the seed and it goes all over everywhere and this is the the imagery that we have here the sower is throwing seeds now we all know that it is impossible to control where all those seeds go Absolutely impossible. They're going to fall where they will. And according to verse 37, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So we see the sower here being a reference to the son of man, to Jesus himself. And by by implication to all of us who following Christ will be sowing the seeds of the gospel. And we also know that according to Luke 8, 11 and Mark 4, 14, that the seed is the word of God. All right. So. As Matthew puts it, it's also called the word of the kingdom. So the word of the kingdom, the word of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the Messiah King and his kingdom where he invisibly reigns in the hearts of believers manifested through the homage and worship that we give him in our lives. Now, as a footnote, when Matthew talks about the word of the kingdom, there are other aspects of the kingdom of heaven that we might want to recall just for a moment. Other aspects that are mentioned in Scripture. Indeed, 
The Bible also talks about a universal kingdom, a universal kingdom where the Lord sovereignly reigns over all of his creation. In Psalm 103, 19, for example, we read the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. However, it's important for you to understand that the kingdom of God also includes the reign of God in the hearts of of men in the church age. There there is an ongoing battle of two kingdoms. It's happening today. The kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God. And by the way, we see the two very distinct kingdoms being represented in the ideologies in American politics and even in world politics. There's a constant clash of these two kingdoms and the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of Satan, as mentioned in Revelation 11:15, And of course, this is opposed to the kingdom of God. Satan is the God of this age. The Bible tells us, and he exercises his rule by holding men and women in darkness through temptations and through deceptions. But there is also a sense in which the kingdom of God exists within the church. Not as a world transforming power, not as a as a glorious order where every knee is bowing before the king, but as a seed that will will grow and produce fruit until the great harvest of divine judgment. And one day the invisible kingdom that lies within the church, shall we say, will become visible. It will be a a, a great tree, shall we say, that will fill the earth and it will have An eschatological consummation when Jesus Christ returns in power and great glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why we're even told to pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus speaks of the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne. The regeneration, the palangonesia, the rebirth or the, the, the transformation of the material order, a reference to the earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom. When the Lord comes again his second time and he renovates the earth and returns it back to Edenic splendor. And that will be a time, according to Revelation 10, when we as the saints will sit on thrones and Rule with him a time when the kingdom of God will fill the earth and we anticipate that great kingdom. But today, Jesus calls men to enter his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom through faith and to submit to his rule. So when we come to Christ, it's more than joining some kind of a social club. We are literally saying that we trust him as the savior of our sins and we bow before him as the Lord of our lives And we surrender everything we have to submit to his leadership. That's what it means to be a Christian. And when we do, we enter into his blessings. By the way, we are also told in Scripture, and we've also seen this, that the kingdom was offered to Israel, right? But it was rejected. They crucified their king. So the author of the, the offer was then extended to another group of people, to the Gentiles, to to the church and the divine rule, uh, therefore brought judgment upon Israel. But however, don't forget, Israel's judgment is not permanent. OK, uh, one day he has promised to regraft Israel back into the sacred vine of redemption and So all Israel will be saved, according to Romans 11, and they will receive the kingdom of God and enter into his blessings, according to Matthew 23 and other passages. 
So ultimately, by the way, the king and his kingdom will reign supreme even in the eternal kingdom after the millennial kingdom, when we have a new heaven and a new earth, when all of God's redemptive purposes have been accomplished and he is glorified forever. So these are the wonderful truths of the kingdom that we can keep in our mind. But our text this morning, dear friends, describes the obstacles concerning the seed and the and the soil for those entering the spiritual kingdom when the people hear the word of the kingdom. And so what we have is the sower. The sower comes along and he sows the seed of the gospel. Now, it's important for you to keep in mind a few thoughts. This is a seed that is created by God, even like physical seeds, whether it be corn or beans or peas or whatever it is. These are seeds that we cannot create. The seed of the gospel is not something that man has created. And there's an important lesson here. If I can put it this way, folks, don't ever tinker with the seed. Don't ever come along and try to come up with a hybrid seed. It it, it would be ridiculous to try to invent some some hybrid gospel that is guaranteed to penetrate every soul. Whenever it's preached, it's guaranteed to do that. It just doesn't work that way to come up with a seed that's going to grow in any soil, to come up with some seed that's going to bear fruit in any any soul. Can you imagine such a claim down at the garden store? We've got a seed that will grow in concrete. It will bear fruit in sand. Well, of course not. It's ridiculous. So we should keep in mind that we must spread the very same seed that Jesus spread. Because, dear friends, there is nothing wrong with the seed. The seed is not the issue here. Also, I might point out there's nothing wrong with the sower. There's no need to reinvent some special method of sowing the seed that will guarantee that it will germinate and bear fruit. The sower is not told to dance around and scream and rave and rant and come up with a with a good sweat and slam the seed into the ground to get it to grow. He just sows the seed. Because, friends, once again, the problem is not the seed. The problem here is not the sower. The problem is the soil, the soil of the human heart, the soil that must receive the seed. You know, whenever I preach or whenever you preach or teach or spread the gospel in any way, we sow the seed, right? And when I preach, I sow the seed. Now, I realize that most of the time it has no effect on most people. So what do I do? Come up with a different seed? In other words, change the message? Maybe change the preacher? Is that what we need to do? No. You see, dear friends, keep in mind that the effect of the gospel on on your heart lies in the mystery of God's sovereign desire to cause you to hear, to receive the seed combined with your humble willingness to repent and to believe. But ultimately, and I want to say this as clearly as I know how, if there is no saving effect upon the soil of your heart, even today, The fault is not in the sower, nor in the seed, but in the soil of your heart. And I pray that the Lord has prepared the soil of your heart to accept the seed that it might bear much fruit. 
You see, I have no power to get the seed to find permanent lodging in your heart, to get it to germinate, to get it to to grow, to get it to bear fruit. If I could put it this way, unlike the Arminian who believes that he alone is the one who decides whether or not the seed will germinate. And unlike the Arminian preacher that is quite convinced that it is within his power to cause the seed to germinate in the soil of people's lives by insisting that a man make some kind of a decision for Christ and even believes further that it is up to him to keep the seed alive. I believe that I'm told to just plant the seed and let God do what only he can do, causing it to grow, causing it to bear fruit and protecting it until the harvest. So I just sow the gospel for I believe that it is the power of God unto salvation. In fact, I'm reminded of Mark 4:26, where we read the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And it goes on. I love this. And by the way, I find great comfort in this as a pastor. He, he, he's, it's like the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And then it says, and goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts up and grows. And he himself does not know how. You see, it is the power of God, dear friends, not man that produces the fruit of salvation from the gospel seed. And it is his power, not man's, that preserves its tender shoots. That's why 1 Peter 1, 23 tells us we have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. I ran across a quote some time back that also speaks to this issue. I've given you a portion of it in your bulletin, but it was spoken by Pastor Richard Trench in England in the mid 1800s. And here's what he had to say. And I quote, sowers of the seed of eternal life are here implicitly bidden to have faith in the word they preach. And he's referring to the passage there in first Peter one twenty three that I just read. They should have faith in the word they preach for it is the seed of God. When it is found place in the heart, they are not to be tormented with anxiety concerning the final issue as though they were to keep it alive and that it could only live through them. For this of maintaining its life, God's part and not theirs, and he undertakes to fulfill it. They are instructed also to rest satisfied that it should grow and spring up without their knowing the exact steps of this growth. Let them not be searching at its roots to see how they have stricken into the soil, nor seek prematurely to anticipate the shooting of the blade or the forming of the corn in the ear. For the mystery of the life of God in any and in every heart is unsearchable. All attempts to determine that its course shall be exactly this way or that way can only work mischief. End quote. Beloved, as an as evangelist. We must never alter the seed, but we must prepare the soil. And this must begin in the pulpit. You see, the soil of men's hearts must be broken up with the plow of conviction of sin. And the subsoil of the soul must feel the anguish of impending judgment as the blades of the law tear, tear deep 
into the hard ground of self-righteousness and pride and unbelief. And sinners must see their weeds of sin thoroughly burned. And the thorns of iniquity must be uprooted and the rocks of pride must be removed in order for the seed to find the soft and the fallow ground of humility. The gospel must be preached in a way that penetrates this type of hard ground. You see, gospel preaching, and I believe this with all my heart, gospel preaching that only scratches the surface of hard ground will never prepare a heart to receive the seed of grace and produce the fruits of holiness. It just won't happen. It's just not going to happen. You see, a man can never be saved from sin until he's first convinced, yea, horrified, that he is lost. And the conscience must be disturbed by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the Word, through, as Paul said, the foolishness of preaching. So, We do all we can to prepare the soil, and Jesus gives us divine insight into the kinds of soil we will encounter. First of all, he speaks of the impervious heart. It's introduced in verse 4. He says, as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And then later on, he explains it in verse 19. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now, here's what he's saying. They had roads back then, little roads where the carts would come along. And you can see in the ancient uh, lands, even to this day, where the carts go and the cattle walk and the sheep walk and the oxen walk and the little donkeys and so on. And many times the people walk on the side of the road and it's like little hard packed paths right next to the hard packed road. And so the point is, all of this soil is hard packed especially along the side of the road, paths that human beings would tend to walk upon and pack them down. And I believe this represents the rock hard soil of human deception, making hearts impervious to truth. When the seed falls upon this type of soil, there is granite indifference. It's unable to penetrate. So the seed falls and the Lord says they don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. Not, by the way, because it is unclear but because to them it is stupidity. It is foolishness. And you've all experienced this before. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 2.14, that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Not because he's got a low IQ. Not because it's just unclear in the way it was presented. But he goes on to say, but because they are spiritually Appraised, anachronitai, a Greek term that means a judicial term that means uh, someone is incapable of rendering a decision because they cannot recognize the facts of a case. So these hard, these are hard hearted people who despise anything that smacks of Christ, anything that smacks of the gospel. There's no conviction of sin. The God of this world has blinded their minds, according to 2 Corinthians 4, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They just can't see it. So the seed falls and immediately what happens? Well, it can't get into the ground because it's so hard from unbelief and from all of the foolishness and immediately it is snatched away by satanic ideologies and philosophies that would mock the gospel. False teaching, false religious beliefs contrary to the gospel. 
pride, the love of sin, the list could go on. There, there are a myriad of factors that would prevent seed, the seed of truth, from penetrating the heart. In fact, in Luke 8, 5, Luke adds that what, what was not eaten by the birds was trampled underfoot. By the way, try presenting the gospel to an Ivy League intellectual or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a liberal Christian in a seminary and watch what happens and you will experience an impervious heart. But the Lord talks about another kind of heart. I would call it the impressionable heart. It's introduced in verses five and six. He says, and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up. Because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had arisen, had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Now, it's important for you to understand there are many places in Israel where there's very little topsoil. Very little. As in maybe an inch. (laughs) And so this was a real problem. Beneath the soil, there would be a hard bedrock of typically limestone. So what he's describing here is what they experience many times. You're unable to plow up this ground, so you throw the seed on there and, and, and the seed enters the soil and it germinates very quickly because its roots can't go deep. And so rather than going down and penetrate, it can't penetrate the rock bed, so what happens? It just goes up real quick. And so these plants will very quickly, as the Lord says, spring up. They're going to spring up faster than the rest. And he explains this in verses 20 and 21. He says, and the one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution rises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Friends, this portrays, again, what I would call the impressionable heart. People who are controlled by their emotions, people who are easily manipulated People who will respond very quickly to the gospel and do so with great enthusiasm. And they will appear to grow very quickly in the faith. They will be very zealous for the things of the Lord and be very vocal about their Christianity. They'll be filled with excitement. Many times they're even euphoric. Oh, I'm going to heaven. My life now has purpose and it has meaning. I've accepted Jesus into my heart and I'm a child of God and on and on it goes. My heavenly father is going to bless me and they're all they're so excited. The problem is there's never been any conviction of sin. The ground has never been broken up. They have never been deeply wounded by the law. There's no brokenness of heart over offending God. There's no sense of impending judgment. That they deserve. There's no, therefore, pleading for undeserved mercy and grace. All you have is just a shallow conversion driven by an emotional response to a superficial, watered down gospel. And then they end up joining the social club of churchianity. By the way, evangelical churches are full of these kind of people. And I fear we have some in ours. Easily manipulated by especially emotional altar calls and other high pressure sales tactics of revivalists where impressionable people are conditioned uh, in in a controlled environment through through music and and persuasive 
uh, rhetoric and tear-jerking stories. And unless they respond to the prescribed invitation, they're going to perish. And so people end up raising a hand or repeating a prayer, whatever the prescribed method is, walking an aisle, signing a card. And the next thing you know, they're saved. And by the way, in some cases they truly are, but in many cases they're not. Then they're singing in the choir and they're teaching Sunday school. Uh, They're writing Christian music that our kids begin to memorize and sing. And they're spreading the good news. I've heard story after story of people that were, quote, saved through this type of a method. And within a year, they feel called to preach. And now they're preaching. I believe our pulpits are filled with these type of people as well. But the Lord says, since the seed has no firm root, has no firm root, it's not grounded deep in the truths of the gospel of Christ. And for that reason, their spurious faith will soon die and it will blow away with the very winds of emotion that originally bore it. Verse 21, he says, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, friends, these are the folks, tragically, that believe but never count the cost. It's mere reformation. It's not transformation. The seed of their faith has no root. So when the inevitable attacks come their way upon upon Christians, whether real or perceived, whenever that happens, whenever the the storms of persecution blow their way, because they have no tap root to provide them with strength in their spiritual life, they just collapse. You've seen this before. People who claim to know Christ and yet they experience some great tragedy in their life requiring them to trust in the sovereignty of God. And what do they do? They get mad at God and shake their fist in his face and abandon the faith. Or you see people that claim they know Christ and yet there's life dominating sins in their life and it never gets better. It just gets worse. People who have some circumstance come up in their life and they claim to know Christ, but they have an opportunity to compromise in some way for some personal gain and they give in and on and on it goes. By the way, it's well documented that in circles where people are asked to respond to emotionally charged invitation systems, the vast majority eventually apostatize completely. That's a documented fact. Historically, that has been the case. In fact, it is necessary in these circles for them to even record what they call second time decisions. You know, again, it's not to say that some are not truly converted, but many end up being mere professors of Christianity, not possessors of Christ, placing them, I believe, in a worse condition than they were before they even heard the gospel, because now they're convinced that they belong to Christ when in fact they don't. Many eventually realize that there's no change in their life. I've counseled with these people before. And indeed, there's not been a change because the Holy Spirit has not quickened their their heart. There's been no transformation. There's been no new creation. There's been no regeneration, no new birth. And when people begin to realize that nothing's really changed in their life, some of them feel, in fact, many of them feel a, a great trick has been played on them and that their Christianity is merely a bad joke. It was a delusion and they become embittered critics of the faith that they once, em, once embraced so zealously. 
with such euphoria. John MacArthur says, and I quote, if a person's profession of Christ does not involve a deep conviction of sin, a genuine sense of lostness, a strong desire for the Lord to cleanse and purify, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness and a love of his word, along with a genuine willingness to suffer for his sake. There is no root to his spiritual life, and it will be only a matter of time before his religious house falls. So the Lord describes the impervious heart and the impressionable heart in these soils. But thirdly, he describes what I would call the indifferent heart. It's introduced in verse 7. He says, and others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And he explains this in verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And again, dear friends, this describes another group of people that frequent the church. I fear even this one. You see, they think their faith is real, but it's not. They look like a Christian, but they never bear any fruit. Why? Well, the Lord says it's because the thorns of worldliness choke out their phony faith. You see, thorns and thistles and brambles all throughout the Bible are used symbolically, metaphorically, to describe wickedness and sin and destruction. Anything that is worthless in fact, you will remember in Matthew 7, verse 16, Jesus used it as a, as a symbol of evil, saying, Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? And here in Matthew 13, they symbolize the preoccupation of man with the cares of the world and the delight in riches which choke the word. By the way, Luke's gospel gives further description. He says, These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked and choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Mark 4.19 also adds the concept of the desires for other things. In other words, the thorns would include desires for other things enter in and choke the word, he says. So here's what happens. The gospel seed falls upon the heart of this would-be professing believer and it is choked out by the thorns that symbolize four things as we compare the gospels. Choked out by the worry of the world, deceitfulness of riches, pleasures of this life, and desires or lusts for other things. And as a result, he's indifferent. This person is indifferent to serving Christ. Apathetic, disinterested, uninvolved, unmoved, unresponsive to spiritual things. They can frankly take them or leave them. Oh, yeah, this person will serve Christ, but only when it's convenient, because really serving Christ is the lowest priority. There are many other things that must compete for my loyalties. And certainly when you look at these folks, their hobbies come first. You know, the type of football came, game comes on and poof, no time for church. They're preoccupied with career, with money, with entertainment. Their hearts are filled with thorns. So they never bear any fruit. They're a hearer of the word, the Bible says, not a doer. You see, these people are what I would call occasionally religious. They manifest the stalk of corn, but there's no kernels of true holiness. These are the peripheral folks, the spectators that hang around the fringes of the church, but they never get involved. 
For example, these would be the men that send their wives and kids to church, but they're too busy. They're too tired. They're too preoccupied with more important matters. With these people, there's no personal pursuit of holiness. You look into their lives and there will be no prayer life. There will be no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. No appetite for the word. They never disciple anybody. They don't ever share the gospel with, with anybody because, quite frankly, Christ is no big deal. They're as immature today as the day they first professed Christ because they possess a dead faith. Think about it. Thorns are natural to soil, right? You go out there and look at any of the soil and you're going to see thorns and thistles, weeds. You're going to see that everywhere. And if you know anything about gardening, and I know very little, but I do know this. That thorns and thistles, especially saw briars that I have out in my field and any other kind of weed, they hang on with great tenacity. They've got to be burned. They've got to be uprooted. But friends, in this person's life, none of this has ever happened. And thorns, like all weeds, will only grow, right? They, 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 they don't just have one plant and stop there. They have to get bigger and bigger until, before you know it, they cover everything. And eventually the weeds suck all the water and the minerals out of the ground, never allowing the plant of faith an opportunity to grow. All of the things of the world compete and went out. You see, the deep plowing of the conviction of sin has never happened. So therefore, they are indifferent to divine mercy. They've never been so overwhelmed with their sin that they're amazed at his grace. And so Christ is just no big deal to this person. Think of the thorns for a moment. First of all, the worry of the world. These are people that are anxious about their career, worried about the stock market, their 401k. Oh, I don't have time for God. Besides, he can't really be trusted. I'm the one that's going to have to make my world work. And that's what consumes his thought life, not serving Christ and living to the glory of God. Or the Lord uses another example, the deceitfulness of riches. Here we have the idolatry of materialism, people that love money. And at their, in their heart, they are, they are discontent with what they have. Every thought and every action is ruled by financial gain or financial loss. And they become obsessed with bigger and better. They're always consumed with, with keeping what they have, frantically guarding their, their treasure, their earthly treasures from, from thieves and from greedy relatives or whatever. You give these people a million dollars and they become consumed with having ten million more. Their lives center around, orbit around the accumulation of wealth. They're forever building their retirement. They're always doing things that will somehow give them a more secure feeling of financial independence. But, dear friends, they neglect the care of their soul that will live eternally. Or it can be the thorns of the pleasures of life, the Lord tells us. You know the type. Maybe this is you. Where your number one goal in life is your own pleasure. You live for recreation. Life revolves around whatever makes you happy. And I believe today we live in the most hedonistic society in the history of the world. People in our culture literally worship entertainment. 
Many are sports fans. By the way, it's not to say that all of this is wrong. It's when it gets out of balance. You know the type of sports fan I'm talking about. Fan, a shortened version of fanatic. (laughs) A person with extreme enthusiasm, which quite frankly is an enthusiasm for things that are eternally inconsequential. As foolish as collecting pancakes. You ask yourself, what is the ratio of money you spend on your pleasures versus what you give back to the Lord? What is the amount of time you joyfully commit to serving Christ and worshiping the Lord versus the time and energy you spend on your own pleasures? Or it could be the thorns of desires or lusts for other things. This is the fourth thorn. These are people that are obsessed with something else in life and all mine. You know, a myriad of things could be listed here. I see people that are obsessed with their bodies. People that are obsessed with video games. People that are obsessed with, with playing some musical instrument or, or fishing or hunting or, 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 or soccer or car shows or, or fashions or the list goes on. And it's, again, it's not to say that these things in moderation aren't things that we can enjoy. But you understand what I'm saying. When that becomes the idol of your heart and it places everything spiritual in a secondary position. First John 2.15 says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? It's not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, friends, these are all thorns that choke out the seed in the indifferent heart of those who claim they love the Lord, but yet, in fact, they love the world. Bottom line, these people have no fear of God, nor do they really love him with all of their heart and their mind and their soul. They have no comprehension of what it means to sacrifice their life as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto God. No idea of what it means to really live for the glory of God. And yet many of them claim to be Christians. Dear friends, this is the indifferent heart that's choked out with thorns. And these people will never enter the kingdom. Might I say, if this is you, may I urge you to cultivate your heart with genuine repentance. Quit growing thorns. Humbly confess your sin and repent and start producing fruit for the glory of God. Well, finally, we have the impoverished heart. The impoverished heart. This would be the heart that is needy, that is broken, that is humbled, that is depleted. How else can I say it? The the, the heart that is poor in spirit, as, as the Lord said in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the heart that that is spiritually bankrupt, that knows that it has nothing to offer, nothing to contribute, nothing to merit salvation. The heart that cries out as the publican and says, oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Verse eight, it's introduced and others fell on the good soil. This is the good soil here. And yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. And then he explains it in verse 23. This is the man who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. You see, this is describing uh, uh, an agricultural yield that is far beyond normal. 
And here the Lord describes the true believer whose faith is proven not on the basis of some profession, but on the basis of the fruit that it bears. He has heard the word and he's humbly responded to the word in faith. And now he's bearing much fruit. The soil of this heart has been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive the gospel seed as described in John 16, 8, where the Lord speaks of him, the Holy Spirit. He says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So this is the man who not only hears, but understands the word and then bears much fruit, which again validates his faith. By the way, you ask, well, what are some of the fruits? Well, there's much that could be said about this, but you might recall in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, we have a list of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, here's what you're going to see in a true believer. They're going to bear the fruit of love. This is the agape love, that self-sacrificial love of choice that chooses to serve and to seek the highest good of others, even if it's an enemy. You're going to see the fruit of joy, which is an unshakable happiness that does not ebb and flow with circumstances, but is a gift from God, the Bible says, and, it, and, it, and is thus rooted in the depths of his promises that sustain it. It will have this life will have the fruit of peace, which is a quiet and calm Body of water deep within the soul, a water of confidence for all who are utterly relaxed in the safety of their union with Christ. It will be the fruit of patience, which is the ability to be long suffering and to endure even when you're unfairly treated by other people. You're going to see the fruit of kindness, which means to treat other people with gentleness and then the tender love of Christ. You're going to see the fruit of goodness, which is that virtue of moral and spiritual excellency and, 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 and decency that's manifested in how we love and how we care for other people. You're going to see the fruit of faithfulness born on this particular vine, which is the unwavering loyalty that a person has and faithfulness to God. And also faithfulness to all those to whom he has entrusted to us. You're going to see the, the fruit of gentleness. A meek and, and, and a humble spirit, an attitude that's exhibited even in the face of offense, which, by the way, is a virtue that refuses revenge. It refuses retribution. It is one that that that, that sees a person being considerate to other people. By the way, the original language even has with it the idea of being teachable and submissive to the will of God. You're also going to see the fruit, the Bible says, of self-control. The Greek literally means to hold oneself in. This is self-restraint. This is self-discipline, something that is woefully lacking in the church today. Self-discipline in every area of life where we control our passions and our appetites, appetites of the flesh particularly, rather than being controlled by them. Well, these are the fruits of true saving faith, dear friends, where the seed of saving grace found receptive soil in an impoverished heart, one that is longing for forgiveness and longing for righteousness, the righteousness of God. This, of course, would be the blessed man described in Psalm 1 and verse 2. He is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water 
which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Well, it's sad. Some of you have parents, have grandparents, even have spouses whose hearts are impervious. Some of you have hearts, and these people have hearts that are impressionable. Some are indifferent. It's a tragic thing. I've talked with you on the phone. I've wept with you. I've answered your emails, talked with you in person. And many people will say, Pastor, what, what shall we do? You've just described my husband or my wife or my child. What shall we do? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Dear friends, continue to faithfully pray that the Holy Spirit will plow up the hard or indifferent or impressionable ground of their hearts. And you keep scattering the seed, the seed of the gospel of Christ. And you trust Christ for the harvest. Let me close with this summary. It came to my mind after I had meditated upon these wonderful truths. The sower sows the seed of truth, not knowing where it falls. Some upon the soil of those who hate the Savior's call, hardened by their foolish pride, unable to discern, the precious seed gets snatched away by Satan's subtle turns. Some will land upon the soil of sentimental faith and quickly sprout a zealous stalk that surely will not break, but beneath the surface lies the rock of selfish pride. And with no root, the storms of life will cause the plant to die. Then some will fall among the thorns of sin and worldly woes and sprout a stalk and promise fruit, yet never really grows. Worries, riches, pleasures, lust, all choke the phony tree. Never rooted in His grace, it dies eternally. But then, by God's amazing grace, good soil, some seeds do find. And down they grow into the depths of grace and love sublime. What fruit those vines of faith now bear, now all the world can see. The power of transforming grace matured from gospel seed. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that it is only by the power of your spirit that the grounds of our hearts, those of us who know and love you, were ever cultivated to a point where we cried out to you, oh, Lord, have mercy. And we thank you for that gift of faith. And Lord, I would lift up any soul that is here today. Who refuses to allow the seed to enter. And somehow, Lord, by that divine mystery of your sovereign grace working in their lives and their responsibility to believe, oh, Lord, I pray that you would save them. And I pray that they would grow a mighty stalk of Christian life and bear much fruit for your glory and for their joy. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. 
For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.